Welcome to Leveraging Leadership, where we unpack the art of business leadership. I'm your host, Emily Sander, Chief of Staff turned Executive Leadership Coach. In this series, we dive into the role of Chief of Staff, exploring how it can be a game changer and pivotal player on your leadership team. You'll get a backstage pass and learn about the different aspects of the role and what it takes to excel in it. We'll hear from some incredible guests who have firsthand experience serving as Chief of Staff or collaborating with one on their team. And don't forget, the Chief of Staff isn't just a title of person, it represents a leadership philosophy. Leveraging leadership is all about finding your points of greatest influence and leveraging them to better serve those around you. Mr. Barton, how are you? I'm doing well, Miss Sander. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. It's so good to see you again. And thank you so much for being our first chief of staff guest. So kicking off. Absolutely. Yeah. So I wanted to give folks a little bit of background and sense of who you are and you know where you came from and what informed your leadership style. And uh, you grew up in upstate New York. And I always, I always knew when you were getting tired or stressed because your accent would come out and you would go to New York. <laughs> so how was upstate New York? You lived in Syracuse? I, I grew up in the Binghamton area and then eventually migrated up to Syracuse after college. Then mm -hmm. I still have family back in. Most of my family is in upstate New York, northeastern Pennsylvania. Very cool. And one fun fact I love about you is your mom, who I met later in life, your mom worked for IBM as a VP in like the 50s or 60s? Yeah, mom, my mom was so back in the back in the 60s, mom ended up as the essentially the equivalent of the chief of staff for the general manager of the IBM plant in Owego, New York. And she kind of made sure that the GM staff was all doing what they needed to do, coordinated everything. And then when she got married to one of the folks that actually she had to coordinate, who happened to be my dad, <laughs> and I and I ended up coming coming along shortly thereafter. She had to leave because IBM at the time wouldn't oh. you, you couldn't you couldn't be pregnant and, and working. Wow! So okay. she resigned from IBM. Okay, yeah, you have strong uh, strong female role model though, which uh, I know oh, yes. into into later in life. We'll get to that. I mean, your dad, among other things, was was he in the army for I think. 30, 32 years. Wow. So dad was in the army for 32 years, uh, retired as a, as a full colonel, went to work at IBM. It was the federal systems division in Owego, New York. And that was, they did defense contracting. And my dad worked on everything, mostly missile systems and avionics systems. He was a program manager. So worked on the late sections of the Apollo program all the way up through the Tomahawk and, and the Harpoon cruise missiles. F-15 Strike Eagle and the F-14 were, were kind of his last, his last things before he retired. What? So <laughs> I know the answer to this, but in terms of education and schooling, you have more degrees than a thermometer. Yes. And you pretty much like started at kindergarten or preschool and you never stopped. So can you give the folks just a high level, you know, rattle off the, the different degrees that you've accumulated? Yep. So I've got a high school diploma from uh, Union Endicott High School. I got a bachelor's in business administration with concentration in finance and business economics from Notre Dame. I got a MBA in operations management from Syracuse. I got a law degree from Northwestern California. I got a uh, uh, LLM in economic regulation from the University of London. And I got a master's in education from university or from Western Governors University and a doctorate in education from 
Marshall. And I've spent most of my most of my life in formal or informal learning, because that doesn't count. I was in the army for 10 years, then I you know graduated from engineer officer basic and advanced courses and combined armed services staff school. So I mean I I love to be a lifelong learner. It's something that I'll I'll never, never give up. I think little known fact before they got rid of the before they got rid of the ratings on Amazon. I was a top 1000 Amazon reviewer and I read probably two books a week, three books a week. So I'm in the triple digits on an annual basis, the number of books I read. And I've seen you read a book, listen to a book and watch a podcast on TV all at the same time, on, on the computer all at the same time. So on, on three times speed, no less. So I'm like, what? What's that noise coming from Ed's office? And I walk in and you're just like sucking in information. <laughs> yes, I've been, yes. A, I've been a witness to that. So lifelong learner for sure. What did the Army teach you about leadership and, you know, operation efficiency and running a, running a team? You know, there's a, there's a few things that I took away from my military experience. And like I said, I did 10 years, started off, I was an ROTC cadet, and then I was, was on active duty for a short period of time and then transitioned over to the National Guard and Reserves. You know, a couple of the big lessons where you only have so many, I'm going to order you to do this opportunities in your, in your uh, bag, to, in your tool chest to use. So don't use them unless you absolutely have to. It's important soldiers, especially in a volunteer army, are, we have an incredibly talented and diverse military fighting force. They want to know why they, yeah. you know, really, in, they really kind of push the envelope of, of innovation and, and kind of creative problem solving. And so one of the most important things that we learned as army officers was this concept of commander's intent, where you basically go, look, I, I'm going to tell you what the plan is. I'm going to tell you what my intent is. So this is what it should look like at the end. And this is what I want us to do. But no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And if everybody knows what that commander's intent is, they're at least going to be rowing in the same direction, even if the war, uh, even if the, the ocean gets choppy. And so that was really the biggest thing I took away from it was one, you know, set your intent, make sure everybody knows what the intent is, know what the goal is. And that way, when stuff starts getting tough and, and you kind of hit that turbulence, folks still know, okay, we're still headed over there. Even though I don't necessarily know, you know, he said, take path A, a path A is blocked. I'm going to try and figure out path B, C, D, or E, but I still know I've got to get to that point. That commander's intent concept was something that has, you know, sat with me for the last 30 plus years. And I mean, you and I have worked together twice at two different companies. And I remember you explaining that to your leadership team, that concept at both places at G2 and at Fusion Zone. And it was, hey, in the military example, it's if, you know, if your leader gets killed or wounded or communication lines get cut, your other officers and other soldiers have to know what the mission was so they can make decisions and try to get there. Same thing with business leadership. Everyone on the leadership team, everyone in the company should know what we're trying to achieve. And so at their level, in their way and in their specialty, they can make the best decisions they can. So that definitely came through. I can I can attest to the being on the receiving end of that, which is which is good. You were a CFO at 27. How did yeah. that happen? Yeah, I, I, it was a combination of of unbridled unbridled optimism about my ability on my part and some good sales on the part of the on the part of me in the interviewing process. In reality, I was working as a as a financial analyst at a local company in Syracuse. The company was going through a buy sell process, so we were getting bought by one of our larger one of our larger competitors. And 
my boss at the time, who was a CFO, was like, look, you're really talented. You know what you're doing. I was I was just getting it started my MBA at Syracuse. And he's like, you know, you're you're beyond what we're going to be able to give you here post post this transaction. So you know, I'm going to make some introductions. I'm going to call around and, you know, kind of help you out here and and see what's what the opportunities are. And had a connection that he hooked me up with. I met met with them, and and it was a it was a local local recruiter. And she's like, "I've got a great opportunity for you." And it ended up being CFO of one of the what is now probably a top top seventy five law firm in the country, Bonchenik and King in Syracuse. And I had an opportunity to go in. They had just hired a new executive director. He was looking to build out his team, and was able to pick up you know kind of pick up a CFO level position. It was it was a pretty healthy stretch for me at the time. But, you know, if you're kind of are willing to work and leverage, leverage the, the folks around you and, and lead, you're going to ultimately be successful. So it was really a combination of doing a good job where I was at having a mentor look out for me and kind of make the introductions and tell folks, hey, look, he's, he's capable of it, even if he's still pretty young. And that's really propelled my career. Well, in terms of mentorship, I mean, you've, you've passed that along. So I'll just share with, with the listeners. When I was at G2, which is a company that uh, Ed and I worked for, I started as a lead position. And I think by the time you got there, I might have been a, a client manager. But right. um, at that time, you know, people management and team leadership was not on my radar. And you saw something. I remember we were in a meeting and you saw something in me. And you came around and said, hey, you know, we should chat more and let me tell you about the other parts of the business and let me tell you how these things work together and what you can work on and what your strengths are. And uh, in one of those meetings, we had several of them, but in one of those meetings, you almost offhandedly said, oh, well, you could run that department one day. And I was like looking around my shoulder, like trying to figure out who you were talking to, because that clearly couldn't be me. But it did plant a seed and it did, you know, lead to my first taking on my first team. And then, as they say, rest is history. And I remember coming to you when I got that next promotion and I said, Ed, like, I got this promotion. And is there anything I can ever do to repay you? And you said, yes, there is. Pay it forward. When my mentor opened a door for me, he said, pay it forward. And so now I'm telling you and that I mean, I'm telling you. That has stuck with me throughout the years, and I've tried to do that for others. So, so thank you for that, and certainly, certainly, it's your mentor did a good job putting you putting you on the right path. Yep. So, so shout out to Walt Larkin. I know he's probably not listening, but you know, Walt Walt was the guy that really got me on the path I'm at today. Wow. Thank you, Walt. Helps <laughs> us all. You have had chief of staff like team members throughout your career. They might have not been called yep. chief of staff, but tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, and I'll and I'll kind of roll back to almost a military time. So you hadn't when I was a company commander, I had an executive officer. And you know, I was at the company level. The same thing happens at the battalion level. You've got an executive officer. And that executive officer is not only the number two person in case you go down or aren't available, but their predominant role is to be the chief of staff, essentially, to coordinate all those components of the business or all those components of the unit. So that you're focused on kind of leading, hitting the mission, making sure the mission gets done, being in the right place at the right time. Um, you've got to have somebody else that's dealing with all of those other coordinating elements behind you, whether that's supply or whether that's, you know, feeding, feeding care of the troops, whether that's making sure that, you know, platoon X, platoon Y, platoon Z all know what needs to, what needs to be happening at that time. 
and coordinating the activities of, you know, supply and administration and, and all those and the motor pool and all those other components. And, you know, I found that to be incredibly useful because as a company commander, you're kind of running around with like a chicken with your head cut off and, and you've always got so many plates spinning and, and, you know, stuff coming at you, you got to digest information, make decisions. And I needed to have somebody and I had a, a, a solid XO who was able to handle kind of running all the, keeping all the, the wheels turning and headed the same direction and making, they knew the operations order, they knew the plan and making sure that that worked. So when I got into my first, really my first CEO position, which was in 2008 during the financial crisis, I, I managed to get kind of put back in one of my, one of my old portfolio companies was working with a private equity firm at the time. They sent me back to my old portfolio company because the banks wanted me there. I'd been the CFO when the private equity firm took over. They sent me back as a CEO and I had a person by the name of Karina Sinclair and Karina, we ended up, you ended up working with Karina as well. Yes. And she came over at a G2, but I had a person by the name of Karina Sinclair. Karina is now a chief operating officer, chief cu uh, customer care officer at Samba Safety. And I, I was like, look, I've got so much going on. I need somebody to make sure that everybody's headed in the right direction. And I gave her the the title of like director of strategic initiatives or vice president of strategic initiatives. But I was basically like, I need you to just make sure that, you know, the, all the, everything's coordinated, all the stuff's headed in the right direction. I'm getting the information flow that I need. You know what I'm trying to accomplish, you know, the commander's intent, how can we get from here to there? And there's a lot of these detail elements and coordinating elements that I just don't have time to deal with when I'm dealing with private equity folks. And again, financial crisis, I'm dealing with banks, I'm dealing with some of the other stakeholders. And that was really my first chief of staff person, although they didn't have a title. But what I found was that was an absolutely, absolutely critical role for keeping both the, all the other C-level uh, folks, so the chief financial officer, chief information officer, chief technology officer, chief operating officer, keeping them all rolling, but also having somebody that everybody knew that you know, Karina knew what I what I wanted to have happen. If I wasn't available, they could ask ask her questions. She was able to get them kind of directed the right way. And folks knew that she she had the, you know, if she was speaking, she was speaking with my authority behind her. And she was able to get things done. So I could be on the road on a business trip and know that the office was going to be running. And if there was a major issue, that she would be able to deal with it. And when I moved over to G2, you know, several years later, Karina came over. And when I ended up becoming president, chief operating officer at G2, Karina kind of filled that role again. And we put in, you know, a strategic planning process. She helped run a strategic planning process, knew what everybody's role was supposed to be, made sure that that was coordinated so that at the executive level, we could be thinking both bigger picture as well as making sure that, that those coordinating elements were, were handled. And again, I think she had a director of strategic initiatives or vice president of strategic initiatives title, but really she was serving as a chief of staff and chief of staff, you know, has been very common in the military and in the uh, governmental sectors for years, but it's really just emerging in small and mid-sized business. And it's something that absolutely every, everybody who's sitting in a, you know, business with, you know, 30 or more employees, you probably, you probably already have one and you just haven't called her or him that yet. <laughs> Or you need one because it's going to, because you're losing coordinating elements or you're spending too much of your time coordinating and spending not enough of your time running the business. If you were talking to a CEO or other executive who has kind of heard about chief of staff and is listening to you now, but is really, you know, do I need one? What's, what are the different criteria and factors I should be weighing? What are the most important things they should be looking at? 
biggest thing is when you when you come to work in the morning, how much of your day is being spent on making sure that everybody understands what needs to be done and coordinating those elements of your business so that they're pulling the right the same direction versus planning for and reacting to issues in the market, planning to planning for and reacting to you know your your business's strategy. And if you're spending you know more than 20, 25 percent of your time on those coordinating elements, and your business is of any reasonable size where you can afford a a chief of staff type person to take those components off of your plate and allow someone candidly whose skills are probably more suited to it and where their responsibility you know is is going to be clearly defined that way you need a chief of staff or someone in a in that capacity even if that's not the title and what i found emily is most chief executive officers most, you know, C-level officers that are sitting in large organizations, they have a chief of staff. They just don't call them that. They call them something else. They call them, they call them director of strategic initiatives. They call them vice, vice president of, you know, administration or vice president of, you know, strategic planning or vice president of, you know, or project management. And really what they are is effectively a chief of staff and making that title change makes all the difference in the world because they recognize now one that that person is generally going to be considered a peer with the other C-level officers in the organization. And it's clear that their responsibility is to coordinate those efforts where, you know, in some of these other roles, they can get brushless, brushed aside by, you know, powerful personalities who don't really want to, oh, yeah. don't really want to play. Yeah. So, I mean, so many things came up there. So you brought me in to Fusion Zone as I think it was Senior Director of Strategic Initiatives. That was my first yep. title. So Ed and I worked together a long time ago, 12, 13 years ago now at G2. And then we, I went off and did some other jobs. He went off and did some other jobs. And we got the band back together and uh, the private equity group brought Ed in. And then you you pulled me into the, to the investment for Fusion Zone. And I came in as strategic initiatives. And that was so you could basically have me be a sweeper and be a floater to anything that needed to happen in the company. And then at what point I remember you coming to me and saying, Emily, you know, in, in terms of your growth here, I'm thinking chief of staff. And I was like, I've heard that in West Wing, but like, what does that mean? Like, what would I be doing? So what had you thinking of the role of chief of staff at that point in the company? Really, we we had gone through a couple iterations of we had turned over almost the entire executive team from when I got there. Again, I, I brought you in. First initiative was to stand up a client services team, which was absolutely critical for us. And you know that was that was and you know you you've done that very very competently before. So it was you know let's come in and do that. But I knew that that was you know there was going to be a lot of lot more fixing to do. You know once we got. The new executive team settled in. What I was finding was, you know, we had folks who were remote. We had we had a number of our executives were working outside the office, and this was pre pre COVID. Um, but it was, you know, we had a number of executives working outside the office. I was traveling a fair bit. Our private equity group was really pushing on on a number of on a number of issues, and we had some, you know, operational deltas that we needed to cover off. And I needed somebody who carried enough weight. With again strong personalities, most chief chief XOs are you know have strong personalities. I needed someone who can manage those strong personalities, but also that I could trust 
to execute what needed to be executed and could make sure that if there was an issue that they would resolve the issue or bring the issue to me when it needed to be escalated. And we were running and continue to run very lean. And so having that chief of staff, you know, I, I was like, Emily can handle anything. I'd had you run a subsidiary for a while. I had you, you know, stand up a, a customer, a customer performance team. I've, you know, you've done accounting work. I mean, it, it, I was like, you know, if you've done almost everything in an organization, so you can speak the language and you're good with people and you don't tolerate too much BS. And so as a result, it, and, and our personalities are, are somewhat different. And so it's it's a compliment as opposed to a, a reinforcement of my personality type. So I think, you know, I looked at it and said, this is really what I need at this point. And I and I've got somebody on staff who's who's, you know, exceptionally capable of doing it. And, you know, after that, my life got a hell of a lot better. Well, I mean, you brought up some good points there. So it's it sounds like trust is a huge thing, right? So someone bring someone close that you can trust, empowering them, which not all principals do. So I think you did an excellent job. Both I look back at Karina's time and also you set me up for success very, very well. And then also having a chief of staff who is willing to jump into anything you ask them to. Cause I remember we'd be at leadership meetings and it was like, this project doesn't fit neatly into any other functional group and it's not well-defined and we don't know who's going to own it. Emily, like, Sander, like, you go take this. And I'd be like, all right. And I'd figure it out. But on the on the setup for success and empowering your chief of staff, so you've mentioned, you know, they're, they're peers with the C-suite and you've mentioned that the chief of staff should speak with your authority if you're not in the room. Can you talk a little bit about how to set up someone for success in that role because that's where I see a lot of people fall down yeah there's a, the the challenge for the the chief executive officer for the principal is to have that conversation with their direct reports in such a way that it's not like look I'm putting another layer in yeah um, versus look this is a real resource here um you know, I'm leveraging, I'm leveraging my time and ability with the chief of staff to be able to get some of those communications handled, get some of these decisions made, making sure that everybody's coordinated on, you know, critical items. It might be a hiring decision. It might be making sure that we've got a customer issue is, is getting resolved. We're kind of making sure that we're following the same strategy as we're looking at product development or as we're looking at customer acquisition or sale or acquisition of a business. And having the conversation around and showing that the chief of staff could be far more of a resource to the, to the other uh, CXOs rather than a impediment or a uh, gatekeeper, I think is, is really important. And the other part is when there is the inevitable, and it will be inevitable uh, clash or conflict uh, with the chief of staff to have that conversation with the chief of staff Essentially, they one know that they've got that you've got their back, and two, if there's any issues that are where you're not well aligned, to get that alignment taken care of first before you then deal with a CXO that where there's the conflict. Because you know, in any managerial relationship, any human relationship, there's going to be misunderstandings and miscommunications and those kind of things. Sure. And you know, when when you're dealing closely with the with the chief of staff. And the chief of staff is dealing closely with the with the other CXOs and other staff members. You know these kind of conflicts are going to arise, and I think showing as the chief executive that hey, this I've got one, I've got the the chief of staff's back. Two, they understand what kind of what's expected both of them and of the organization, and they're 
And if there's an issue, you know, I'm, I'm generally going to make sure that their voice is heard, respected, and heavily weighed in any decision that I'm having to make in a, in a conflict tends to set the chief of staff up for success. On the flip side, the chief of staff has to put themselves in a position where they're willing to ask questions, where they're willing to get clarification, where they're willing to make sure they understand what the expectations are of them. And a lot of principals, I think, could do well to spend some time with, you know, where someone like you or an experienced chief of staff outside their organization that's been successful to see how best to utilize that resource. Because a lot of us were never trained to do it. I I was fortunate that I had military training where we kind of learned how to use a chief of staff and an XO type function. We're, you know, in business, especially small mid-sized business, we may never have seen such a thing before. And so getting, you know, if, if you never had a chief of staff before, kind of spending some time with with someone, whether it's, you know, a successful chief of staff, a successful principal who's had a chief of staff, how well they, you know, how they set them up for success, how they position them within their organization, what have they assigned them as specific duties. I think that's going to be good counsel for a, a chief executive. And, you know, it's going to, that's also going to help set the, the chief of staff up for success as well. And I've had, I have several clients right now whose principal, the CEO is bringing on a chief of staff, so a brand new role. And that's good. That's great. And then they're like, okay, you're here. So my job is done. And it's like, hey, you, you know, that's, that's not quite how it works. You're, you're leaving, you're leaving value on the table and you have so much more that you could get out of that role. And one thing that you, I, I completely felt like you had my back, which, you know, if I didn't have that sense, I wouldn't have been able to do the role as well as I, as well as I could. And I do remember that we had some strong personalities. I will not name names, but we had some very strong personalities who did not see the value in the role or anything I was doing. And in terms of having influence without authority, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I remember being in these conversations and I knew you had my back, but I was very careful about using your name. So you talked about you have a limited number of do this because I said so, right? So yep. I was I didn't want to throw that out, nor did I want to throw out we're doing this because Ed said so, which might have been the case, but that wouldn't have helped the conversation. So I had like, you know, a handful of those a year. But what are your thoughts on influence without direct authority and how that's, you know, that's for the chief of staff and also for other people in the company? Yeah, I think I think that goes back to that commander's intent discussion we had at the beginning. You know, so if everybody understands what the intent is and you're all kind of pulling the same direction, a lot of that influence without authority is really the chief of staff reminding folks what the commander's intent is and kind of what the priorities are and where the where the resources are being are being allocated and why. And so it's not necessarily a, you need to do this because of X. A lot of times that, that if the chief executive and the principal has done a good job of kind of laying out what the intent is, what the resources are, what the, kind of what the strategy is, what the tactics are behind it. So what the plan is, the chief of staff then is really, is really in that key role of making sure that that stuff's being executed well. So it shouldn't be like, well, Ed said, they know Ed said, he, he's, they sat in a meeting where Ed said, they've got the, they've got the PowerPoint presentation where Ed said, it's really kind of the reminder. And again, a, a good, a good executive team, you know, it's, it's ultimately the, the chief executive's responsibility for making sure that they're all kind of rowing the same direction. The chief of staff is a critical component to that from the standpoint of, 
kind of making sure that as, you know, as I kind of described, you're all rowing the same direction. And if one of the boats starts, you know, kind of pulling off the one direction that the chief of staff goes, you know, pull on the left oar a little bit stronger and, and you know, get yourself back in line. But the chief of staff should not be, and the, the chief executive should not put the chief of staff in a position where they have to be the enforcer of, you know, the, the, the strategy. And they have to kind of force folks into, into rowing, let alone rowing the same direction. It's really force correction. And if you do that, you're, you've got a lot of you're, you've got a lot of influence because you're just kind of helping folks out, making sure they're all pulling the same direction, not you know having to to direct as much as as much as advise and counsel and and remind. And that's really you know if if you do your if you do your job as a chief executive, the chief of staff can do their job as a chief of staff and you know kind of course correcting rather than trying to fix everything. If you find yourself where your chief of staff is constantly running into, you know, the I'm ordering you to or Ed says, you've either got a problem executive or a problem chief of staff. And that's, yeah. you know, and, and that's something where, again, the principal needs to get involved and understand that. And I think part of it, too, is we were in constant communication. So I always was checking in with you. I always was making sure that we're, we were aligned. And so I had great confidence in okay, here's what Ed would like, or here's what I think is the best decision for this 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 uh, juncture. And I think it's, you can, you can hang on to your principal's coattails for a while as chief of staff, but quickly you need to be able to stand on your own two feet and people need to recognize, oh, I respect Emily as chief of staff, not only because she has a unique link to Ed or she has the, the CEO's ear, it's because she's very good at what she does and I respect her opinion. And so at first, when I first came in as chief of staff, I could tell that people were, you know, just kind of curious and maybe optimistic or maybe a little bit, you know, questioning about what the role was. And afterward, it was very much, you know, okay, they understand what it is. They understand I'm there to help them, push them in the right ways, but also give them the resources they need and give them the information that they need. And so I could tell the difference. I could tell the difference in the interaction with people as that as that went along. Is there any team or company that doesn't need a chief of staff? It's like, mm, wouldn't really help you. Yeah, I, I'll... I'll give a couple examples, but I'm going to go back to something you just said because it, it kind of triggered it kind of triggered an ed, a piece of advice to to my CEO peers. Look, if you're if you're going to bring a chief of staff on, be prepared to invest some time up front in order to be able to make sure you're aligned with the chief of staff and the chief of staff is comfortable asking questions. And you know, again, it, it, as as you noted, Emily, we we would sit down, we'd have the the Kind of executive meeting once a week for an hour, hour and a half. And then you and I would sit down for 30, 40 minutes immediately after that to kind of make sure we got everything hashed out. Let's debrief the issues. Let's make sure we're following up on these couple of things. And the there's a lot of chief executives, I think, go, well, I can, you know, I don't have time to put that, you know, put that extra half hour to an hour in every week to make sure that chief of staff is and I are having a good solid one-on-one and going through stuff, or it becomes too hierarchical. CEO is, you know, dictating X, Y, or Z, and it's not conversational and there's not a, a lot of give and take. And I just, you know, encourage all the, the CEOs out there, if you're going to bring in someone into this position, you're the most important thing you can do to make, 
to, to save yourself a ton of time is to invest a little bit of time into the chief of staff every week to make sure you're aligned, have those candid conversations. And again, Emily, you know, you and I would have conversations that could be incredibly candid and you have no problem speaking truth to power. And, you know, some, sometimes I get kind of irritated and, you know, but I also, there's also things that I recognized I needed to hear, even if I didn't want to hear it. And, you know, that's, I think what made the, the, the position as successful as it was. And that's something that I think other, other chief executives need to, you need to embrace that if you really want to see this as success in your organization. I mean, you and I, I think, always made a good team in whatever company we we're in because we were so different and because we had complementary skill sets that you would see things and be approaching something. I was like, I, I wouldn't have even thought of that. And there were, you know, a few times where I brought something up and it was like, oh my gosh, that's a really good thing to consider. And so I think that you don't surround yourself with yes people. You surround yourself with the best people who are willing to challenge you in the right areas. And so that to me was not only a huge learning experience and it's just a, it's just a joy to work with someone like that, but I think it made us more effective. And I think it made you more effective independently and me more effective but the team, I think the team benefited from that as well. You also, just to touch on this, I don't want to make too much of this, but I was just realizing at G2 and at Fusion Zone, you, we had a diverse mix of executives when I was sitting in that executive team meeting in both. And I've probably taken this for granted over the years, but you were very big on just getting the best person in the seat and having a diversity of experience and background. Is that something you made a conscious choice about or were you just like, I'm I'm just getting the best candidate and it happened to be that way? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm I'm I made the comment once that at while I was at Fusion Zone that I was the only native born non-ethnic white male on the executive <laughs> team. So, you know, which again is not I I don't want to say I go and look to make sure I've got right. a you know, ethnically diverse workforce or gender diverse workforce. But what I do make sure is I don't rule out any candidate until I've had a chance to talk to them and I'll go straight off that resume. And what it, what tends to happen is if you do that and you open yourself up to candidates that are a little bit off the beaten path as far as, as, far as background and experience, and you look for folks who are go-getters, you look for folks that are going to be smart, that are going to you know, kind of bring bring all of themselves to the table, you end up with a pretty diverse workforce and a pretty diverse executive team. And I do look for diversity of thought. And I look yeah. for diversity of, of personality type and diversity of background, professional background and educational background so that, you know, we see things through a lot of different lenses. And then you're able to kind of, with those pieces, kind of build a collage of a picture that's probably going to be a lot more accurate than any one uh, set of lenses. But I've, you know, I've had executives, you know, I, I have executives today that have never graduated from college and they're vice president level and I don't care. They're extremely good at what they do. And, you know, conversely, I've got, you know, I've got, like you said, more degrees than a thermometer and it, you know, I, I think I bring a different perspective to the table, but that I don't think it's required to have six degrees in order to be able to be an effective executive. So, yeah, I, I value that. I value that diversity of background, education, experience. And when you look for that, you probably will end up with a lot of other diversity in your group as well. But I don't look for that other, you know, kind of immutable diversity. I look for the business diversity that's going to provide us with better decision making. 
Yeah. Well, I think the way you approach it is is spot on because it's not about optics. It's not casting. It's not check the box. It's and I I never felt that way. I mean, I'm I'm a female and a I'm, I'm Korean American. I would hate for someone to hire me for a role just because of that, right? So I always appreciated that approach approach from you. And I do remember you were you were talking to someone at G two and you were getting into a heated conversation about a candidate. And they were saying, you know, Ed, you, you have all these degrees, like we need someone more pedigreed. And you raised your voice a little bit and said, I don't even care if they graduated finger painting. If they can do the job, then get them in here. And I was like, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So I think that I think that has served you well and served the teams and companies and customers that you've been organizations that you've been a part of. When you're setting up that chief of staff for success, in terms of the time commitment, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. I have a, a client right now who said, Emily, it's the end of my first week and my principal has given me 30 minutes next month. Do I, do I ask for more? And I said, yes, you need to ask for more time to make, that, to make that more successful. So thank you for saying that. And how would you explain to others what a chief of staff was? I mean, I was there in a different role. A lot of CEOs or executives are bringing in chiefs of staff for the first time. And they, they're having to explain to their team, hey, here's what this is about and here's what I intend it to do. It's, it's sometimes a bit amorphous and vague of a role. So how would you explain that to people? Yeah. And that's a, that's a great question because it is amorphous and vague. And sometimes folks like me will leave it somewhat amorphous and vague because, <laughs> you know, I, I, I like having good talent around me and I'm like, okay, I might need to plug that talent in somewhere. You know, and, and you got subjected to that with like I said, running, running a subsidiary, running HR, running, you know, wherever we needed you, I would send you. But really what I, what I would say is in a more of a pure chief of staff role, the responsibility of the chief of staff is to make sure that all of the disparate business elements are coordinated and moving in the same direction to achieve the, the tactical and strategic goals and operational strategic goals of the organization. So the chief of staff's primary responsibility is to make sure that the resources are getting allocated in accordance with the with the strategic plan. If there's a resource, if there's a resource conflict, that you know, if there's questions around, you know, should I be doing X or Y, the chief of staff is going to be your first stop to to kind of ask that question because you know they should know what the what the priorities are, what the what the commander's intent is, and what the resources available are, and be able to kind of go that direction. Chief of staff needs to have uh, their ear to the ground and understand what's going on, Be have their eyes open, you know, ears ears open, listening for any issues or problems and, and kind of raise those as a concern to the principal or to the CXOs that they're, that they're working with on a regular basis so that that way it doesn't turn into a, a significant issue and kind of can nip any issues in the bud. And Finally, the the chief of staff really, you know, and I this goes back to the kind of the military side of things. The chief of staff, in in many cases, coordinates a lot of the the staff communication. So that might be, you know, and I don't. It's not an executive admin role, but there's a lot of coordination that needs to happen. Yeah. That is, you know, written and verbal and meetings and you know travel and you know, do we need this person to go on that trip? Type of questions. That the chief of staff, you know, is generally kind of is looking at the big picture along with the chief executive, but is looking at it at a more tactical level and is able to, 
either advise or make decisions on those things. And I think the last part, and this is one that I've tended to use the chief of staff for, but it's been because again, whether it was you or whether it was Karina, you know, I, I've had a good relationship with, with both of you, no, knew both of you, you know, in other capacities, Karina had been a, a financial analyst, you know, you'd been a customer, basically ran our customer uh, support team. So, you know, it was a, a position of trust and sometimes that trust, you can't just like wave a magic wand and that yeah, happens. Right. But I used you guys as a sounding board, as a, you know, as a, you know, we could talk about confidential, confidential things, whether those were, you know, HR related or whether that was, you know, operationally related and about stuff around and, and get, you know, honest feedback. And I, and I value that as a chief executive, it can be a very difficult position when you don't have somebody to be able to bounce those types of, of yeah. issues off of. And the chief of staff tends to see things in a little bit different perspective than the chief executive does because they're closer to the tactical execution and are able to bring that perspective to bear. And I remember people would come to me and be very upset about something and say, we have to do something about this. And why doesn't Ed do that? And I said, okay, well, you know, we have a meeting with him on Tuesday. Why don't we bring it up and you can, you know, share your thoughts and recommendations there. We get to the meeting on Tuesday and I tee up like, you know, hey, you know, you had mentioned this this thing before as a as an entry to them talking about it. And they're like, no, no, it's fine. I don't know what you're, I don't know what you're talking about. Everything's everything's good. Ed, everything's fine. And I was like, oh my goodness. So I think part of my job was to get you actionable information from the company and accurate information, objective information. And that was a, a big piece of it. Also to, you know, you weren't scared of having truth spoken to you. <laughs> I might've done it in, uh, in some forceful ways and direct ways at times, because I was passionate about it, but you would listen, you would, you would listen and you would consider it. You didn't do everything that I was talking about, which is totally fine, but you listened and considered it. And I think that I saw that with Karina too. And I think if a, if an executive is, is going to bring a chief of staff in, they need to be able to do that. So in terms of an executive and their, and their personality or disposition, is there anyone who just wouldn't do well with the chief of staff because they're not as open to it? Yeah. And that kind of goes back to the question you asked before we went down this rabbit this rabbit trail, but you know, there are organizations that really, or people that don't do well with a chief of staff, if it's really small, if you're doing, if it's basically a, you know, let's call it under 25 people and you don't have the budget to do it or tactically the chief executive needs to be doing a lot of that coordination because the business doesn't have established policies, procedures, needs a lot of the tactical decision-making from the chief executive. It might be pre-chief of staff stage um, for an organization. Folks who also don't do well on a with a chief of staff tend to be ones that are going to be very my way or the highway. Mm-hmm. You know, the door, I don't have time. I don't have, I don't have inclination. I don't like to collaborate. You know, I like to just make decisions and then have people execute those decisions. You know, I don't, I'm not one that really, you know, pushes for a lot of feedback. Again, I, my personality tends to be almost too far in that direction of, you know, give me more information, give me more feedback, let me, you know, kind of, kind of noodle on that. Folks who are very bang, 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 and they're not looking for a lot of input. They feel like they've got the input they need to make decisions and, you know, they're not comfortable with a give or take on that. They're probably not going to have a, they, they need a chief of staff. They're not going to be successful with one. And 
you know, that's that's really the two the two points. I think any executive that's got multiple kind of multiple operational verticals. So whether you know it's finance, you know, the chief executive we got finance, marketing, sales, yeah. you know, technology, operation, product, et cetera. Any of chief of staff, you got to keep all those all those verticals kind of pointed in the same direction. Even if you're sitting down as a you know chief financial officer, um, which is where I spent you know about half my career is in a general management uh, capacity as a chief executive or, or chief operating officer, and the other half is a chief financial officer or controller. The even as a chief financial officer, if you've got you know organization where you've got you know a couple controllers, you've got subsidiaries, you've got tax department, you've got you know, payment processing accounts payable, accounts receivable, and you, you know, you, you probably need a chief of staff type person too. A lot of times we rely on our controller to do that, but you need a chief of staff person to make sure everybody's coordinated because you've got a lot of disparate elements and you as a chief, chief financial officer should be thinking strategically about the finances of the business. I'm using that as an example, need to have somebody who can make sure that each of those operational elements are all headed the right direction following the finance strategy. So, you know, folks who don't need it tend to be, I've got one operation. We all, you know, it's, I don't need to coordinate a bunch of stuff across, you know, internally across a bunch of, a bunch of, you know, different disparate individual or, or operational components, or I just don't, you know, don't value a lot of input and decision-making and, you know, those are going to be folks who where it's not going to work well. And I think in to that point, in your terms of listening and decision-making, one of the things that I really appreciated about you and I think made you an effective leader is you always left room for, I could be wrong. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm not the end all be all. I could be wrong. So I want to listen to people and, and you made decisions. So you didn't get into analysis paralysis and just kind of adopt a defensive crouch and hope nothing happened, you would make a call and you would swing us in a certain direction. And that's what we needed. So I think having, having the mix of that can be really, really effective. Yeah. I, th- I do think, you know, one of the advantages of having as much formal education as I have is you realize that you really don't know that much <laughs> and, and you do need a lot of, a lot of input and information and you're always going to be operating in a environment of you know, uncertainty and imperfect information, and you just make the best decision you can with what information you've got. Yeah. You've talked about, you know, how to how to set up a chief of staff for success if you're an executive. If you're talking to prospective chiefs of staff or existing ones, what advice would you have for them? The biggest, the biggest thing is make sure that the situation you're in is one where you can be set up for success. I think there's a lot of a lot of folks go into these roles and they expect that they're going to be able to change their principle. So, you know, I can I can make them change. I'm I'm powerful. I, you know, and it's probably not going to be the case. As a matter of fact, that's probably not a good strategy. You you might end up if you're if you're overtly going in going, I can fix it, I can fix this guy, or I can fix this gal, then you've probably got a problem. You know, I I would say that the biggest advice is when you're interviewing for a chief of staff role. You're interviewing as much for whether you want that role and that principle and whether you can work with them in this type of capacity and whether you'll be set up for success as it is you want the job. And if it's not going to set you up for success, you really probably need to, you know, this is one of those few positions at the executive level in business where the interpersonal skills and the resonance between you and your principle are more important than your technical skills. 
So it's that's going to be the most important part. So for a chief of staff who's looking at, you know, a potential chief of staff looking at that role, that interviewing process needs to be very much two-way, even if you're not saying it. And you need to be very honest with yourself around whether you think that this situation is going to work. And, you know, this is somebody who you can work with and have a, you know, a, a good, solid, collaborative working relationship with. And I think if you're already in that position and you're asking that question, you need to be honest with yourself, whether it's the right situation for you and whether it can be and whether you can be successful. And I think, you know, some of it may be you get, you know, you get some some discussion with other chiefs of staff or, or you know, folks like you that that have kind of been there and done that and have had to work through some of those issues. It may be that you have, again, as I had mentioned a couple other times, have your principal talk to somebody who's had successful <laughs> chief of staff, whether that's another principal like me or whether that's, you know, someone like like you, Emily, who's kind of been there and done that so that they understand. A lot of times it's just a lack of like, oh, I didn't think of it that way. Yeah. Oh, I didn't understand. And and it, once it, that kind of that kind of clicks in, especially at the principal level, it becomes that much, that much, that much easier. I think, you know, and if it, but if you think you're going to change your principal without some of those, some of those elements, that's probably a fool's errand that I, you know, that's, that's not going to be a recipe for success. Yeah. On the principal side, I I have a, a principal and a COS I'm working with right now. We don't have the sessions together, but I'm working with both of them. And the principal like, well, Emily, I have nothing like to give this person. And I was like, okay, like, let's go through the stuff you're working on. And of course there were, you know, eight, 10, 12 things. I was like, oh, okay. I see how to use it now. So sometimes (laughs) it's like, I have option A and option B and it's like D, E, F, G, Z, blue triangle. You know, you have so many, you have so many opportunities here. You, I have so many questions, but I'm going to be respectful of your time here. You read so many books and you are a big thinker and, and you learn all the time. What what recommendations would you have for books to read, for chiefs of staff, for principals, just for people in business, for leadership, any of those hundreds of books you read a year? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with, on a general leadership basis, almost anything by John Maxwell is going to be good. John Maxwell's very, you know, his books tend to be short. His books tend to be easy to read. They tend to be pretty resonant with the you know, kind of servant leadership type approach. And you know, I, I think he's I think he's kind of one of the masters of our time and and kind of the 21st century leadership approach. Patrick uh, Lencioni as well is his his tend he tends to write in the you know it's a business novel, so they tend to be more story oriented, which I can get into. And you know, those 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 books tend to be pretty good, especially if you're a principal. He tends to write for chief executives and 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 the general management types, and really. Will help focus you on, you know, what you should be doing as a as an organization and as a leader to make your organization more effective and efficient. If you don't have a strong interest or a strong background in operations, and you're coming into the chief of staff role from a a softer softer skill like HR, for instance, or you know, client services, et cetera, I would look at uh, the goal by uh, Eli Goldrot. As a really good book, again, it's written kind of in the form of a uh, of a business novel, um, but it's a classic, like business school classic on how operations operations work and where to look for issues and problems and and how to help resolve those. And I think if you're coming into a chief of staff role and you've got kind of all of a sudden you were you know kind of focused as an individual 
or executive on one element of a business. And all of a sudden now you're basically in a, you're, you're paralleling a general manager. You know, a lot of areas where we tend to fall short are, you know, we're strong in our areas. So for me, it's finance and I, you know, finance is one of those areas where I'm, you know, I'll naturally gravitate there. Operations being another one because I had my MBA was in operations management where I don't tend to gravitate to sales, marketing, those kind of things. So I read a lot of sales marketing books so I can understand it better. But most chiefs of staff come out of non-operational roles. Right. Um, and so I would, like I said, I'd recommend uh, Goldrod because that his books tend to be very readable, um, but it also it makes you think about where things tend to break in an operation. Um, how to fix it, how to analyze it. And that's a skill set that probably was not well developed before you took the role. So those would be my kind of my three authors. Um, each one of them has a veritable library, especially Maxwell and Lencioni. They have a library of books to, to read and they're all good. Well, thank you for those recommendations. We'll certainly have those links in the show notes. But Ed, thank you for for being on and sharing your your wisdom and knowledge about how to how to set up a chief of staff for success and also how to be a successful and effective chief of staff. So thank you very much. And, and thank you, Em, for having me on. And also thank you for kind of providing this resource for folks like me. I, if I had had something like this when I was going into this role, you know, 20 years ago and kind of I'd appointed my first chief of staff, I probably would have been far more successful and, and you know, had a better idea. And I wouldn't call them director of strategic initiatives. So you know, this is a this is a great resource, and I appreciate you having me on. Well, it, it worked out well, and I think you've I think you've done okay. So I would wouldn't be myself. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Ed. Thanks a lot. All right, thanks, Emily. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.